Hello and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, a UK charity that provides information and support for those who live with pain. Pain Concern was awarded the first prize in the 2009 NAP Awards in Chronic Pain. And with additional funding from the Big Lotteries Funds Awards for All programme and the Voluntary Action Funds Community Chest, this has enabled us to make these programmes. I'm Lionel Kellaway, and in today's programme... I was told, this is how you're going to be, you're going to have to put up with this for the rest of your life, and that was a destroying moment for me. Chronic pain is actually quite common in children and adolescents with prevalence rates that mimic adult prevalence rates. The main factors that I have found that predict how good somebody will be is their dedication and commitment to learn hypnosis and how motivated they are. I got to the point where I even said, look, amputate the leg. If if it's going to help, just take the leg off. You know, I'd rather have lost the leg than continue. More on those stories coming up. But first, we at Pain Concern want to pay tribute to our patron, Claire Rayner, who died recently. Many words have been said since her passing, but I think the best tribute we could pay is to hear the advice she gave to airing pay listeners earlier in the year. You'll also hear the words of Pain Concerns Chairman Heather Wallace and Martin Johnson, who chairs the Royal College of General Practitioners Pain Management Group. One summer night, gone to bed early, I was lying in bed, stretched out, stark, was reading, glasses on, and everybody knows. My husband comes in and he stares up beside the bed and he said, Look at you, he said. You've got artificial shoulders, artificial knees, you've got hearing aids, you've got a pacemaker, you've got glasses. I don't know whether to plug in or switch off. Claire Rayner was an inspiration. She challenged the view that nothing could be done about pain and suffering. She also championed the rights of older people and the notion that pain was an inevitable part of ageing. She herself endured considerable illness and pain. She didn't let her disabilities hold her back. This arm, it's all right to the right, but I've learned not to try and lift myself up with it. I've learned not to stretch with it. Tricky because it's my right arm, but there you go. And I shake hands when I meet people. I put up my left hand to say, hello, it's lovely to see you. And they're a bit startled at first, and I say, sorry, the other one's a bummer. <laughs> and there you go. Just be cheerful about it. I'm deaf as a poster when I meet people. I say to them, you'll have to speak up, love, I'm, I'm a bit mutton. Do you know, the, you know the term, mutton Jeff? Good old Cockney, you know, mutton Jeff. I'm a bit mutton. <laughs> You've got to be brave and upfront, and do remember that once you're an old grown-up person, you don't have to be polite and good anymore. You are allowed to be selfish if that's what you think it is. I don't think it's selfish. I think it's common sense to look after yourself. But you're allowed to ask for what you want. You're allowed to say, please help me. There's no, no loss of face in that. I do it all the time. Claire Rayner was the most dedicated people's champion that I've ever met. Even throughout her illnesses over the last few years, she's been so dedicated to doing work for patients. It was a privilege to work with her. I am a trustee of the Patients Association. She has spearheaded the National Patients Association for many, many years. And I can't think of anybody that has done more for patients' rights than Claire. She wanted people to learn about pain and about pain management so that they too could manage their condition and get on with their lives and get the most out of their lives. She was an empowering woman and we will miss her greatly. We'll miss her voice her energy 
and her influence on health policy. You deal with pain, by it, but you have to be rational about it. Is there anything you could do to get rid of it? Yes, do it. Is there anything you could do to get rid of it completely? No. OK, bad luck, live with it. And that's what you have to do. You learn, as I learned, not to think about it, not to focus on it. But I find I have a pain more than that bothers me more in one knee. I will start flicking my fingers, even as I'm watching television, because that makes me shift my focus of attention from the achy bit to a bit that isn't aching. And that works quite well. I don't do it. If I do it in the cinema, people might notice. But even there, if something hurts, I might flex my toes because that shifts my physical attention to another part of my body. One of the best things you can do is get in touch with these specific group. They're all there. Use them. And then just get on with living your life. And if you've been dealt a, you know, a bum hand, well, you can turn it into something good. The much-missed, inspirational Claire Rayner, who, amongst many roles, was patron of Pain Concern. I'm Lionel Kellaway, and you're listening to Airing Pain. I was about 11 years old. Uh, I noticed I had two distinct lumps on my calf. Uh, within a couple of months of noticing this, I started getting pain symptoms in my calf, uh, and within another couple of months, I was in absolute agony. After that, we obviously went through the whole plaza of meeting doctors, surgeons, trying to work out what it is, going for scans. Um, the original decision, I think, was that they thought they were um, lipomas. They operated, found that obviously what they were operating on was not lipoma at all. And the operation subsequently had the effect of increasing the amount of pain I was in. The lesion yeah. in Sam's leg, which was an abnormal vascular lesion, was putting pressure on the nerves in his leg. And there was no cure at that time. And he was in agony. When he was young, he described it as like someone poured petrol down the back of my leg and set it on fire. And I think that set the scene for the next 10 years. That's Jan Barton and her son Sam, whose story we'll be following throughout the programme. One of the biggest problems, and often if you talk to people that suffer pain, chronic pain, is being believed in the first place. When Sam first became ill, he was misdiagnosed. What Sam had wrong with his leg is very rare, so I can forgive people not getting it right, but I can't forgive them not understanding how much pain he was in. And they said he had lipomas in his leg and he shouldn't be giving pain. And they was, people would say things like, is he happy in school? That was a good one. Yeah, I do Doing... remember one particular doctor actually <laughs> suggesting, do you perhaps think this is all in Sam's head? And I found this extremely distressing, due to the amount of pain that I was in, that someone was essentially saying, is he happy in school? Perhaps is he making this up, you know? And even if it was, for example, it doesn't change the fact that it was still painful. Once he had a proper diagnosis, once he saw the right people and they did the right scans and they diagnosed what was wrong with him and they could see what was causing the problem, then obviously then he was believed. But I think for many people that are in chronic pain, not being believed is one of the hardest things. Sam Barton's story is, of course, unique to him. But there are issues and experiences that affect all of us who live with pain. On Airing Pain, we want to be led by you. And several listeners have contacted us with comments and questions that also have relevance to Sam's story. In the last edition, we looked at the complex subject of neuropathic pain. And one listener responded to that programme on our Facebook page. The writer says, 
I have neuropathic pain, so the program was especially useful. Then goes on to say, I had two hernia repairs between the ages of three and five, and when I was 38, I developed neuropathic pain in my groin. Another correspondent writes via our message board. My husband lives with chronic pain, and his doctors are not giving him or me any psychological help with dealing with the effects of the pain. When I suggested to my husband that he might be depressed and could maybe benefit from some pain management, he says there's nothing they can do for him and he has his own ways of dealing with it. I now feel we can't discuss any of this without getting upset or arguing, which makes his pain worse and makes me feel worse. A few months ago, I went to see the counsellor at my local carers association, but I felt I didn't get on well with the counsellor and don't want to see her again. Where else can I get support for myself and how else can I support my husband? Well, you'll hear a lot about this subject, not just in this programme, but in future editions of Airing Pain. Addressing this questioner today is Amanda Williams, who is a consultant clinical psychologist in the Pain Management Centre of the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. This is really rather moving and actually very typical of, of what happens, that pain doesn't just affect the person with pain, but it affects those who are, who are close to them and, and care about them. It's not uncommon for people with chronic pain to feel that they're managing well because it sounds when one suggests a pain clinic or help with pain management as if one's saying they're, they're coping badly or they're not, you know, in some way they're weak or they're, they're failing. But pain is incredibly difficult to deal with. And while her husband may be right that there's nothing that can be done and his own ways of dealing with it are the best, it's pretty unlikely and there's usually something to be learned uh, from discussing this with uh, specialists at pain clinics and also uh, very often with other patients who are at pain clinics because many of these things take place in, uh, in group settings where people learn from one another and offer one another ways of understanding pain that uh, then all can benefit from. But probably if a husband did go to a pain clinic, then her involvement in helping him work on new ways of doing things, experimenting with different ways of doing things, would be best. So she can actually be a, a really effective asset for, for him in trying to do things differently. And many pain clinics really welcome husbands and wives and other you know, close relations who are keen to help and, and support People underestimate the effect it will have on a family group. It doesn't just affect the person that's in chronic pain. It affects the siblings, it affects the parents. Um, when Sam was first on all the medication and he was about 13, when we'd come back from London and been told, well, there you go, guys, he's on the meds, off you go, get on with it, yeah? Unfortunately, the combination of the drugs, we hadn't realised that Sam was starting to hallucinate and see things. So it all came to a head one morning when Sam and his little brother were sitting upstairs in bed and Sam was seeing things and he started screaming and he was having florid visual hallucinations. And um, unfortunately, his little brother was sitting next to him when, he was, when it happened and he was quite traumatised by this and the fact that then Sam was seeing things walking around the house and we'd go to sit on a chair and Sam would say, don't sit there because there's Marvin's there. Because what the yeah, way Sam dealt with it was that he invented a goodie 
yeah. called Marvin. Now, Marvin would um, chase away all the bad shadow people, weren't they? Shadow yeah. people? And I mean, at the age of 13, you know, when you start seeing shadows step out of the wall, I mean, it was really bizarre. It was really strange and it was, it was really scary at the same time. However, his little brother had even less insight as he was only 10. I was absolutely traumatised by all of this. And as an example of how it then affected the family group, for six months afterwards, he would not go anywhere in the house on his own. So we had some help from an organisation in Swansea called the Tristan Lewis Trust, and they had a play therapist who um, started to see Robert and did the trick. After a while, he did, he did recover from the experience. But it took a good six months before um, he got over that at the age of 10. This is Airing Pain with me, Lionel Kellaway. Another questioner to our message board has touched on issues raised in this programme. But before we continue, please bear in mind that whilst we believe the information and opinions on Airing Pain are accurate, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now back to that question. How can a psychologist help with pain management? Addressing your questions today is consultant clinical psychologist Amanda Williams. Well, pain is very stressful, as several um, others have pointed out on your program. And there are many problems that having pain causes for somebody. So psychologists try to help address those. Some of the problems are outside the individual's control, but there are still ways that people can protect themselves from things that are outside their control. But others uh, have possibilities of control. For instance, we all have habits in the way we think and the way we react emotionally to problems. And uh, we characteristically do things in certain ways and that feels normal and usual and sensible and so on. And that works for most problems in our lives. And then certain problems like pain can challenge those because they don't give way as problems to those kind of solutions that we're used to using. So a psychologist will try to help look at things from a broader perspective and discuss different ways of thinking about problems, different ways of reacting emotionally to them, and different ways of, of handling them. Then those possible solutions are tried out and discussed. Um, a psychologist really tries to work with people in a, in a joint way, so it's a shared journey of exploration, finding out more about what works for the person with the problems in their particular circumstances. There aren't any answers that work for everybody, but psychology is enough of a science that there's some things we can be fairly sure about. Amanda Williams there. So, bearing in mind Sam's story, what is the psychologist's role in a case involving a child or adolescent? Tonya Palermo is a paediatric psychologist and associate professor at Oregon Health and Science University in America. Chronic pain is actually quite common in children and adolescents and in, in large community-based studies. There have been findings of 20 to 40 percent of youth having some pain that persists over a three-month period. And among those youth, those who have severe and disabling pain is approximately 5 to 10 percent, which is almost exactly the same as the adult population. Typically, when we see youth for psychological treatment for chronic pain, we develop some shared goals, and those are around functional goals for the child. 
these may involve aspects of physical activities that they're no longer able to perform but they want to get back to, such as being on the basketball team again. These may be very practical, routine life activities, such as participating in chores around the house again. Um, or these may be uh, mandatory type goals, such as requiring some type of school attendance um, or participation. And so we typically encourage youth to come up with a variety of goals that are beyond pain relief because the focus on only pain relief can, can sometimes be counter-therapeutic because youth may not see the value in engaging in a variety of other activities but want to focus instead just on controlling their pain and we know that those approaches don't work as well. My goals were basically I just wanted to work, wanted to get a job, wanted to be normal, I wanted to go out drinking, doing everything that you know a normal 16, 17 year old would be doing but I was almost living a sort of a a double life in a way because when I was in a sort of remission, you know, where the leg wasn't hurting too bad, maybe for a couple of weeks, I would be able to go out, go down to the pub, hang out with my friends, and then I would end up in absolute agony again. So I would kind of disappear off the scene completely because I wouldn't obviously be able to go out, I wouldn't be able to do what I wanted to do. And I find it very difficult with work because I was desperate to work. And I find it very difficult with employers, you know, trying to explain to them, look, you know, this is why I've been off work today. They knew obviously I had a problem, they were trying to do their best to help me out and uh, provide me with some work and I just got sick of letting them down all the time really so this is, I think that was the point where I decided that it would probably be best to apply for disability living allowance and income support. The way we typically explain to children and adolescents that activity participation may lead to pain reduction is that the, the temporal ordering of that is, is that once you participate in activities that that alone, both the routine involvement of that as well as showing yourself and feeling more confident in your abilities to do important things in your life, that that often leads to pain reduction. And so sometimes we don't need to think about a specific strategy to control pain, but we just need to instead focus on how to get back into important life activities and that that involvement will often lead to a decrease in pain. Pediatric psychologist Tonya Palermo and Sam Barton. I'm Lionel Calloway, and you're listening to Airing Pain. One of the routes offered to Sam Barton was to undergo a three-week residential pain management programme at the Bath Pain Clinic. His mother was also encouraged to attend with him, but how did a rather cynical and battle-worn teenager and his mum get on? They did all this stuff, you know, like guided meditation, which is a little bit of... So I, don't, I, I don't really <laughs> believe in that kind of stuff, you know what I mean, but... It was very helpful being in a situation with people, obviously, who are experiencing the experiences that I was going through at the time, you know, and it was uh, sort of lifted me up a bit, you know. They were trying to work us into a better routine. Obviously, I was very sleep inverted, so I was not sleeping in the night, sleeping through the day, you know, which was the same as everybody else who was there, really, you know, and it was just a case of, you know, making us get up in the morning, making us do some exercise, whether it was painful or not, you know. I think being on the residential course in the pain clinic at Bath with Sam was really helpful because I was able to speak to other parents in a similar situation. I would be able to talk ways of trying to manage this. When you do a course like that, they ask you, what is your aim from the course? And mine was just to try and find a way to help Samuel. I think that was the my, my goal. I didn't actually believe when I went on it that we could. So that's another thing I guess I gained from it, that we did find ways of helping him. And it's simply being with other people and 
working together and being taught ways of managing it was very helpful. Jan and Sam Barton there. And Erin Payne will be visiting the Bath Pain Clinic in a future edition. Another tool in the psychologist's toolbox is hypnosis. And there is evidence to show that it can be particularly effective for children undergoing painful medical procedures. Research into its efficacy is being carried out by Christina Liossi, who is a senior lecturer in health psychology at the University of Southampton and a clinical psychologist at Great Ormond Street's Chronic Pain Clinic. One of the benefits of hypnosis is that um, children can learn hypnosis very easily. It doesn't have any side effects. And also, techniques such as hypnosis can be generalised uh, to other distressing situations that children find themselves into. Uh, so, for example, when I was working in oncology, we were teaching children to use hypnosis for pain management for lumbar punctures or vena punctures, uh, but then they could use exactly the same skills for nausea and vomiting management, for insomnia, for other distressing symptoms that they had because of cancer. I'm using hypnosis for my chronic pain patients and I have found it equally effective as in the acute pain setting, although I have to say that there are differences between acute and chronic pain, so it's not exactly the same situation. The results have been very encouraging and very good in the adult uh, population as well. For example, it has been used for women with breast cancer that they have to undergo biopsies, uh, for people that undergo uh, bone marrow transplantation, uh, but there's a small percentage of people that they have low hypnotic ability. But even these people, even if they don't get the full benefit of hypnosis, they get some benefit from the relaxation that accompanies hypnosis. I think one of the things that really has stuck into my mind was a five-year-old uh, boy that I had taught him hypnosis. He had his lumbar puncture without any other medication, just with a local anesthetic plus hypnosis. He was very happy about it. And then when I went back to the hospital a week later, I found out that he himself had taught another little boy how to use hypnosis because he was going to go for a procedure, this other boy, and was very scared. Uh, so he had taught him how to hypnotize himself. And then the other boy went into the treatment room, uh, had the procedure, and was very calm and very confident, and there were no problems. And of course, you know, the parents were talking about it and said, what's going on? Who is this little boy who is teaching my son hypnosis? That shows that hypnosis is something that can be beneficial and also easily taught, even by a five-year-old to another seven-year-old. That's Christina Liossi. You're listening to Airing Pain with me, Lionel Kellaway. So, back to Sam Barton's story. Here's his mum, Jan. We had a few quite unpleasant years between about the age 18 and 21 where it was difficult for him to work. He was in pain again. So you had two options he was facing. Do something or live like this for the rest of your life. Doing something was risky. There was a big risk of making things even worse if that were possible. So he was referred for what they call a, a treatment called, which is a sclerosing treatment, which is a bit like what they do to varicose veins, but a bit more sophisticated than that and they inject the lesion, the vascular lesion, with a fluid as the idea to shrink it. And that's what um, they did. The first treatment went OK, the second treatment was OK at the time, but he came back and he was... and then blue-lighted into moist and a day later, and he was in absolute agony. Um, I have never, ever got over that, um, ever got over watching, listening to that. We'll, we'll never get over <laughs> 
watching him screaming in agony. Please kill me. I don't think I'll ever get over that. Punching myself in the own head, trying to knock oh, myself Oh, I don't know out. what you were doing. It's just <laughs> one of the most appalling things I've ever witnessed. And that's after working seven years in intensive care. It's one, yeah, of those, so one, one of those moments when you're in so much pain, you literally, it's like you've switched off. It's like you've, you've, you go inside your own head, you know, and it's, it's like nothing outside yourself is happening because of what's happening to you at the time. I have never, ever felt anything like that before in my life. What did he say? It felt like somebody'd stuck a blender in his leg, back of his leg, and turned it on. Adolescence is a time of, of change in many areas for youth, both their cognitive development, their physical development, and social relationships change dramatically. This can have impact on how parents and youth interact. And when you throw, put that in the context of any chronic health condition, such as having chronic pain, there may be difficulties in how youth and their parents communicate about the child's pain and their management decisions. We've seen this in, in ways that we try to encourage parents to consider the level of decision-making power they give the adolescent, because often this is very motivating when a young person is given their appropriate decision-making capacity again, instead of having the parents make decisions for them. We went to London and the surgeon we saw was excellent and said that he thought it probably wouldn't make things work. There was a 10% chance that he might have some improvement and there was a chance that he could have a lot, a big improvement. And Sam had to decide to take the risk, didn't you, Sam? If I didn't go for the surgery, I continued down the road I was going. To be honest, I was probably going to end up drinking myself to death or doing myself a nasty, if you saw what I mean, you know? And I, I got to the point where I even said, look, amputate the leg. If, if it's going to help, just take the leg off, you know? We actually asked the surgeon. I, I really got. To, I didn't. I didn't care. You know, I'd rather have lost the leg than continue. After years of being told, you know, oh well, one day, you know, this is going to get better. We'll find something to do about this. I was told this is it now. This is how you're going to be. You're going to have to put up with this for the rest of your life. And that was a destroying moment for me. A destroying moment indeed. And Sam's decision to undergo life-threatening surgery. It all went extremely well. They removed part of the lesion. He didn't bleed to death on the table, which was always a plus, wasn't it, yeah, Sam? Yeah, you know. And they were able to move some cysts inside the nerve sheath in his leg. And it doesn't hurt. I have no pain, which is um, miraculous, really. I'm completely pain-free, you know. I wasn't even expecting that before I went for the surgery, you know. If anything, I didn't go into the surgery, you know, confident that I was going to be better afterwards. I thought, well, maybe it might be a bit better. Maybe it might be the same, but it's worth trying. And this is brilliant, you know. I mean, this is fantastic. Before, I wouldn't be able to walk maybe even like a quarter of a mile without ending up in absolute agony for days and days on end. And yesterday I walked for about three and a half miles with the dog. <laughs> and obviously I've got a job, I'm going to work later on. <laughs> I can live a normal life without actually trying to live a normal life. I can go mountain biking, I can go surfing, I can, I can start skating again, which means a huge amount to me. I mean, it's, it's essentially saved my life, you know, in more than one way. Our thanks to Sam and Jan Barton for sharing that very moving story with us. And don't forget that Airing Pain is here to help you. So if you'd like to put a question to our panel of experts or just make a comment about the programme, then please do via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter, or if you prefer a good old-fashioned pen and paper, then the address to write to is Pain Concern, 1 Civic Square, Trenent spelt T-R-A-N-E-N-T. The postcode is E-H-3-3-1-L-H. All this information is on our website at www.painconcern.org.uk. 
It's a one-stop resource to get further information about this program, including a glossary of the medical terms used, and to download this and all previous editions of Airing Pain, along with a host of information on how to manage your pain. In the next program, we'll be exploring the subject of nutrition, weight control for those with lower back pain, and mindfulness. But for now, I'll leave you with some personal advice from Jan and Sam Barton. A lot of people find it particularly helpful to try and make contact with other people in a similar situation via organisations like Contact a Family or the various pain charities. I think it's quite useful to be able to contact and talk to other people and find what is out there in the way of advice. Be careful what you read on the internet. Don't believe everything you read online. However, there is useful information out there and there is good, reliable safe information out there but do be careful that you don't believe everything you read on the internet but just look for the help that's out there and don't give up. I would say to people that no matter how hard it gets just keep going keep pushing on and don't let it get you too down no matter how hard it gets and you will have those moments where you hit rock bottom and you think nothing can ever go right you know and that this is it, game over, you know. No matter how hard it gets, everything you do in your life, everything you say, everyone you meet, you, it defines who you are. It builds the character that you become. And going through something as hard as that I've been through has really turned me into a, into quite a sort of good person, you know. I've got a fairly strong character, you know, I've got a fairly strong drive to continue my life. And even if I was still in pain, still everything I was doing, you know, would still be defining who I am. So don't give up and just remember that you're a stronger person than most people would be, you know.